Graham Tuckett's here. Hi, Graham. Hi, Jesse. Good to talk to you, mate. Uh, nice to chat to you as well. And you've been to a few movies, um, including some of the Dock Edge, which we'll get to. But firstly, The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry. Sounds like a very British movie title. It is terribly, terribly British. It's, a, it's an extremely English film. Like yeah. If you tried to do this in America, I think the guy just simply wouldn't make it because <laughs> the distances would be too large. Hmm. Um, the Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry is based on what was a very popular 2012 novel by author was Rachel Joyce. Uh, it tells the story of a an elderly, you know, well into his sixties, maybe early seventies, gentleman by the name of Harold Fry. Uh, he is married to the lovely Maureen. They had a son. Um, Harold receives note that his old, an old workmate of his, an old colleague of his from you know a decade or two before, but a woman by the name of Queenie, is um, is fallen deathly ill, and she is in um, end of life care. At a hospital far, far north, far norther in England, far more to the north in England, um, some six hundred and twenty odd miles. Mm-hmm. So Harold, being you know a lovely old fashioned bloke, thinks I'll write her a letter, which he does, and he walks down to the post office, to, walks down to the mailbox to send it, and he thinks, oh, well, I've I've missed the post. I'll go to the mailbox to the uh, post office. Walks another mile to the post office and then goes, you know what? <laughs> and in the way of you know eccentric English gentleman in fiction from as long as we can remember, he just keeps on going. And he's right. decided to walk from basically the English south coast. I can't remember the exact place names, but he, he's walking pretty much to the Scottish border. Like he's about 623 miles to a place called Berwick-on-Tweed. And he doesn't tell anyone initially that he's decided to do this. He doesn't contact Maureen, his wife, for you know a good day or two. Um, she obviously is beside herself with worry. He seems like an extraordinarily um, selfish sort of man for heading off and doing this, despite the fact that he's doing this wonderful thing for his old friend, his old friend Queenie. Maureen is going, why? Have you abandoned the marriage? Have you walked out on our relationship? Have you walked out on all of our history? Just exactly what was going on between you and your colleague you know, all those years ago that you should feel the need to do this for her now and leave me at home. So it becomes, <clears throat> although it's you know it's kind of a rom com and it's kind of feel good and it certainly it certainly you know stumbles its way towards a very very cheerful and optimistic ending. The unlikely pilgrimage of Harold Fry has got just a little bit more meat on its bones than we normally expect to the sort of British rom-com about mm-hmm. older people going out on their own on great odysseys to find themselves and reconcile them with themselves. I mean, that's a whole. there's a whole genre of films based around um, people in their 60s and 70s who sort of rediscover late in life a joy in life by meeting new people and trying new experiences. And yeah. the pilgrimage of Harold Fry is like... Square in that genre, but it does do it nicely. Like I was writing this up for the paper last week. Um, the film opens; it opened yesterday nationwide. Um, there was a one. There was a movie came out or earlier this year with Timothy Spall called "The Last Bus," that was about a man living in Scotland who decides to honour his wife who has died. That he's going to catch buses the entire length of England. Um, so that he can leave her ashes at sort of land, at Land's End on the very southwest corner of England, 
And I, th- I had I was thinking like Timothy Spall and Jim Broadbent, who's the star of Howard Fry. Like, they must be old mates, and I could always almost imagine them tossing <laughs> a coin at a pub back in 2020, if going to a pub in England was something you could do in 2020, and saying, "Right, do you want the one about the bus, or do you want the one about the guy who walks?" Because there's <laughs> yeah. they're so much the same story, but of the two, the unlikely pilgrimage of Harold Fry is by far, I think, the better film. Um, Jim Broadbent is an absolute legend of the British film industry. He's been around ever since Blackadder and before. He's in the Bridget Jones diary. Anything you've seen in the last couple of years with a really, really nice old bloke with a bit of a twinkle in his eyes, there's a really good chance it was Jim Broadbent. He was in the lovely one about the um, the retired military officer who steals the painting earlier this year that Simon Morris dubbed his, one of his very, very favourite films of 2022. Um, just the minute you see Jim Broadbent's face, you go, oh, that guy. He's in everything and he's good in all of it. Um, Penelope Wilton, almost ditto. She plays Maureen. She's been in Shaun of the Dead. She was in Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. Again, absolute stage and screen legend of the British industry. Um, there's also a lovely bit of work from Earl Cave, who is the son of musician Nick Cave. Um, who plays uh, there? Who plays um, Maureen and Harold's teenage son in a few very very poignant scenes? So that's the unlikely pil- pilgrim of Harold Fry. It's a feel good film. Yeah, but and it, you're likely to know whether it's going to be the sort of movie for you already. But uh, pleased to hear that it delivers. Yeah. what it sets out to, to deliver. It's got a deliver. little. It's got a little bit more sinew to it than than the yeah. genre often delivers. I found myself liking it more than I was really expecting to. Thank you. Uh, now you've been to another New Zealand-made horror film. Yeah, we one of these recently. I'm guessing because North America and you know, the the rest of the movie-making world went into lockdown for longer than us. Right, we're starting to see some of the um, stuff that was filmed in that time. Yeah, especially the stuff that came out of our industry, sort of 2021. I'm guessing that you know may have been shot in North America, but was actually made here. But that said, I could be wrong about the tank because it is a New Zealand writer director as well. Oh, um, Writer-director Scott Walker, um, this is his second feature film. His first feature film was called The Frozen Ground. Now, I haven't seen The Frozen Ground, but I was really impressed that anyone who's making their first ever feature film got Nicolas Cage to star in it. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't mean it's a great film, because Nick Cage is wildly eclectic, but if you get Nicolas Cage with, with, with your first ever you know, feature-produced script, you've got it. You know, it's got to be pretty good. Um, the tank is set in the coastline of Oregon, up in the northwest United States. Uh, local viewers will probably be sort of pleasantly surprised to find how much Oregon looks a little bit like Bethel's and Piha. Um, the film kicks off in 1946. We get a flashback of a, a man obviously meeting a fairly horrible sort of fate via some unknown thingy that is dragging him back through a manhole in the ground. And then we flash forward to 1978, I think it is, late 1970s. Uh, We are not too far from Oregon. I think the city must have been Seattle. And we find a man in his 30s, I'm guessing, called Ben, played by local actor, Auckland-based actor Matt Whelan. Um, And Luciane Buchanan, also Auckland-based, but becoming internationally famous these days for being in The Night Agent on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, they play youngish husband and wife. They've got an adorable six or seven year old daughter called Raya. And Ben finds out that he has inherited a house 
from his mother who has recently passed. He didn't even know this house existed. No one in the family has ever mentioned it. It's been 30 years since the events of his, you know, his old man um, passing away when, uh, before Ben was even born. And suddenly there's this news, like he's inherited this house in the Oregon wilderness. They, <laughs> jump, they jump in the station wagon and, you know, not knowing anything about it, nobody's seen it, nobody's even been on this piece of land for 30 years, they decide they're going to go up there and spend the night. Cool. So what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, exactly. So you've got so that's, great premise, though. Oh, that's look. There's a whole genre of hob- of horror movies that you lo- loosely call the cabin in the woods, and there's straight away this is literally a cabin in the woods um, scenario. There's the three of them inside. They have two visitors. One who's an estate agent who has heard news that the house has been the house might be coming on the market, and already she has buyers lined up. She lasts about 10 minutes before something growly in the undergrowth gets hold of her. Um, Ben, our young dad, runs up to investigate or goes to drive somewhere, finds the horribly eviscerated corpse of the estate agent, phones the police, goes back to the house. Adorable local policeman turns up, meets exactly the same fate in the same place. So we think, well, you know, to be fair, he probably wasn't going to be detective material anyway. Um, it just leaves the three of them in the house, and we know that there's this horrible beastie outside actually living in the water tank, hence the name <laughs> of the film, The Tank. Now, at this point, oh, I yeah, got, that's that's quite good for New Zealand. Yeah. You know, every New Zealand co- um, rural property's got a water tank. The <laughs> idea does, of it being a source of horror is quite a nice idea. I mean, they are. I mean, water tanks in the ground are potentially very, very scary places, and this one mm-hmm. is built, you know, the beautiful people of, uh, you know, the Auckland set building industry put this one together so it looks like a almost like a French catacombs or some sort of hideous dungeon. We spend an inordinate amount of time down in there with just old lanterns and unreliable torches that, you know, the unreliable torch they hand out at the beginning of every horror movie. And, you know, it's a pretty it's a pretty grim and scary sort of place. Look, the tank, it's not great. It takes a long time to get to the point that you want your horror movie to get to, which is like, let's see the monster and let's see what it can do. And Scott Walker has to sort of hold his monster back for a long time because there's really not enough, I'm going to say, potential victims or potential backstory (laughs) or potential relationships between these three to really fill in like an hour of character development or anything like it. But when the beasties do appear on screen, it's like, hooray, they're not CGI. These are old-fashioned uh, suits with people inside them, just like Alien was back in the day, created by the geniuses of Witter Workshop in Wellington under the under the um, charges of Rich, uh, Rich, Sir Richard Taylor himself came out to work on this one. So when the when the the monsters of the tank, uh, and it turns out, yeah, mild spoiler, there is actually more than one of them. Um, when they do turn up, they are just like a delight of old fashioned. B movie midnight horror making like these yeah. are these are suits with what you imagine is like liters of um, slime rub rushing off the face. Right, you think they found the old Wilberforce costumes from the nineteen eighties under the oh. mountain TV show? Uh, anyone who was a who was a fan of that genre, like you, just love to see a bit of you know, you love to see a bit of latex turn up on screen. <laughs> and when it's well engineered and well done, and obviously being well operated from within, and also by technicians from without. You know, in the twenty we can augment that with a subtle amount of CGI to do what maybe latex couldn't achieve. And you know, suddenly in the last twenty minutes or so, the tank becomes a real good old-fashioned monster movie. Oh, and cool! For that, 
for that I commend it and for that I loved it. The 60 minutes getting there, a little bit of a slog and probably a little bit a little bit more funny than maybe Scott Walker was actually intending it to be. <laughs> but, um, yeah, for the last half hour or so, why not? It's just a good amount of silly fun. I see cult classic written all over it. A couple of minutes, uh, Graham, on the Dock Edge Film Festival. Oh, man, look, the Dock Edge Film Festival has, I have to say, has been through Auckland already. You've got to be quick out of your seat to get to the Dock Edge Film Festival. It spends, I think it's a week in Auckland, and it spends about a week in Wellington. But as of late June, the Dock Edge Film Festival is also available on line like i think it's every film or a very very good selection of what's at the dock edge film festival this year will turn up virtually where you can basically go to the website and um rent access to any film you want to see i was lucky enough uh, lucky enough last night to go along to the wellington premiere of a film that's been that was shot in afghanistan over the course of 14 years a film called one bullet um american director a woman called carol dysinger uh, she is a New York academic and a very respected filmmaker of many, many years. She went to Afghanistan in 2005 to um, basically to, to follow up a different story. And she found herself at the bedside of a young man, a 17-year-old boy, who had been shot accidentally, um, possibly by an American serviceman. And she decided to follow the investigation into whether or not it was an American serviceman that was responsible for this you know, young man being, uh, this young innocent non-combatant being shot. And the story turns into something else. It actually turns into this incredible friendship and relationship between Carol Dysinger, this you know, New York academic coming from one, very much one world, and a woman called Bibi, who was the, who was the mother and the grandmother to generation to a gener, two generations of Afghan civilians, she was the mother of the young boy who was shot, and the film becomes not exactly a comparison, but something about Carol Dysinger learning an awful lot more about the actual people of of Afghanistan, and particularly the mothers and the children, and the teachers and the nurses of that country. Whereas you know all we normally see of Afghanistan represented on our television is you know, bearded, angry young men with guns. And she just sure. goes right behind that and says, these are the mothers, these are the people, these are the civilians. What's that one called? Sorry. It's called One, yeah. it's called one Bullet. Great. We'd better leave it there. Thank you very much, sir.